in my headphones about what's going on. See, I can clearly see mm -hmm. the the waveform. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, welcome to Exit the Stage Door. I am your host, Aaron Teachman. And with me as a very special guest this evening is... Me. Okay. Um, that's my sister. Her name is Kirsty. Uh, we're about to jet off to Spain here in a couple seconds. Uh, probably a couple thousand seconds, but anyway. Um, and this episode is Lauren Halverson. And that's kind of amazing because I used to work at the Alley Theater, uh, as I'm sure you've heard a lot. And so did she. And we worked there at the same time. And this is going to be a topic like immediately in the episode, but <laughs> I never met her while we were working there. And I think that's kind of hilarious. What do you think, Kirstie? Too crazy. There you have it, the definitive take. Uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to wrap up season one here pretty soon. Uh, we've got this episode, this absolutely fantastic episode with Lauren Halverson, who's the Associate Literary Director at Studio Theater, and she's a dramaturg as well, a production dramaturg. Um, uh, we talk about that a, a, a little bit in the episode. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes as well. I'm going to talk to Catherine Rodriguez one more time um, as she finishes up her fellowship at Center Stage, and we're going to talk about Troll 2, and that's going to be super-duper fun. Uh, have you seen Troll 2? No. Okay, so that was a no. Um, and then we're going to finish up Season 1 with another discussion of some kind or another with Danielle Molman. Yeah that one uh which is also going to be great i don't know how that's going to go down i'm going to talk to her as soon as i get back from this whole uh spain thing uh so you have that to look forward to um in the meantime uh jumpers for goalposts is open now at studio theater and uh mary kate olsen is in love i totally butchered the name of that play there's another play opening at studio that you should probably see because it's good and I'll uh, put that link in the show notes. And otherwise, uh, thanks for joining us. And ladies and gentlemen, it's Lauren Halverson. That's really what you want to hear. A siren going down 14th Street. Okay. Okay. Yes, I swear. And okay, we got that. We got that. Okay, great. Is it all working? It's all working. <laughs> These are sensitive microphones, so it's all good. Okay. So I'm like just fine like this? Yeah, this totally. Great? Yeah, I heard cool. everything and it will be wonderful and great. Awesome. As usual, we've started off with a number of topics that would have been great when we were recording, but <laughs> I haven't managed that trick yet. So I, pr I promise I haven't saved all of my good stuff. <laughs> That's good. Actually, I wanted to start with the one thing which I thought was the most interesting uh -huh. right off the bat, which is that you and I both worked at the alley at the same time. That's very true. But never met. Well... When did you work there? I worked there from 2006 to 2010. Oh, so you were there for like the entire, almost the entirety of the time that I was there because I, because <laughs> I moved there um, right, it was right during Hurricane Ike. Um, I moved like, <laughs> I did. I moved the week after Hurricane Ike hit. Um, oh, yeah. Which was a chaotic time to be there. Yes. But, um, and I left um, in August 2011. So we were there for like the entirety of time. But like the thing about the thing about the alley, like for people listening that don't know, is that it's massive. It's yes. completely huge. Um, and there were people that worked there for like two years that I didn't know until like my last season there. Yeah. Um, and also given the nature of like working in literary, I yes. was like tucked away on the 18th floor. Yep. Um, 
But yeah, no, my first show was um, Cyrano, and my last <sighs> one, yeah, and the last one that I worked on was um, Etherdome. Oh, yeah, that's the season after I left, so I did not yeah. get a chance to play. So I left like right at the right at the beginning of that. So yeah, yeah. They were still in rehearsals, but <laughs> that's crazy. Wait, so were you like in electrics? So you worked Yeah, in- I was um so I started off as an electrician and in the middle two years I was the board op downstairs. You were in the So I ran Eurydice. With so like you knew like Merlin and yes. Fred and everybody yes. and all the other lovely people. Yes, that and Barry. <laughs> And like and Brett Anders, I have like yes, such, I have yes. such affection for the entire production department of the Alley Theater, like to this day. Yeah, still which which is hilarious because I I knew all those people and was friends with those people and ran shows with them, and yet somehow we still did not meet. I know, and I spent I dramaturged a lot of shows in the New House, um, so that's. Did you so do weird. rock and roll? Um, I was. I did a lot of research. I made a lot of timelines about Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, but I, my boss or the director of new play development, Mark Bly, was the yeah. dramaturg on that. Um, and I just did a lot of sort of like mm-hmm. sundry research. Well, research that was it. Greg and Pat Collins and Hugh Landwehr. Like that was a prestige. Show. Yeah. That was. That was it. That was a huge show. Yeah. Um, and I was a little intimidated too because I um I think that was my first season and I had. Oh no, no, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had um prior to joining the alley had never professionally dramaturged anything which is <laughs> which is you know curious but um so the first show that I did was the man who came to dinner there and then I think oh I did, okay yeah which was a lovely first show to do um, yeah it's a fascinating I think something that it needs dramaturgy because of its like rich production history which yes. has since fallen off that we don't necessarily know the history of who that mm-hmm. person was all of that stuff yeah, yeah. Um, so that was great, and also like John Rando was like lovely because I because I was just kind of like, hey man, don't know what I'm doing at all. <laughs> We're just gonna figure this out, uh, and I think that was like one of the nice parts about working at the Alley is like sort of when I when I got that job, it was understood to me at least that you know I have no I have a lot of literary experience. I've done a lot of work like working at new play festivals, but I didn't have a lot of production dramaturgy mm-hmm. experience and. I thought that there was going to be a little bit more of an extended mentoring time before I got thrown into a rehearsal room. Um, and that didn't happen, but in some ways it was great because everyone is so on their A-game there yeah. that like it forces you to just sort of like learn by doing. Um, so it was a little like trial by fire, but I think it ended up being like a really positive experience. Um, so I did that, and then I did. Then I was like the co-dramaturg on Farnsworth Invention. <gasps> yeah, I was there for that. How, did you hate your experience with that? No, I had like a totally pleasant time. I, I mean, Cromer's an amazing guy. Like Krom- the director, awesome director. Yeah, I mean, this was. <laughs> I, there was this moment when they were trying to stage. I think it's like the beginning of Act Two when it's like the stock market crashes. Yes. Um, and Cromer, I think at one point was like. I just need someone to explain to me like like the history of this. And um, and Mark tasked me with sort of like figuring out how to do this. And I ended up bringing him and I apologized like profusely beforehand. I was like, please know that this isn't me like sort of like making some comment about your intelligence level. But like the best thing that I found was this book that was geared toward middle schoolers <laughs> explaining the stock market crash. And I'm like, I'm not being like condescending or anything, but this is actually like the clearest thing. I think it's better for you than any of these other academic sources that I'm finding. Um, and I'm sorry <laughs> I'm giving this to you. But um, but he was great and it ended up working like really well. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I know it's not like a perfect play. I mean, yeah, it's sort of that's, classic. Yeah, that's mostly like, what I'm about out there. It's like an Aaron Sorkin, like, oh, you were clearly writing a screenplay, and then you were like, oh, let's just turn this into a play. Which is like, I hate making that comparison, but like, I think it's a 
deeply cinematic piece. Um, yes. And my end of it was to help program the projections that we used. Oh, God. Oh, God, you poor thing. That was a lot. And then I ran um, I ran the show. And most of what I did when I ran the show was like, that doesn't sound right. Oh, it isn't. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were you there when Aaron Sorkin came to see it? <laughs> yes. Um, this is this is my favorite part. Is he was like doing this like Q and A. Yeah, I wasn't there for the Q and A though. No, Q, the Q and A was actually like very well curated. But he was talking about like somebody asked him like what is he working on next, and um, he's like, oh, I'm writing this like this movie about Facebook. And I remember thinking like this sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard. Like this is going to be a terrible movie, um, which is why I don't work in film development, I guess, because I was very very wrong. But, well, um, he left out some key parts of who else was working on that, like David yeah. Fincher. So. Exactly. Also, he hates the internet. So, like, yeah, I think he's... that, like, if there's anything you know about Aaron Sorkin and sort of his, like, body of work, it's that he is intensely distrustful of the internet. Oh, my gosh. So I was a little skeptical of him doing a movie about Facebook. Um, turned out to be wrong, but that's okay. Yeah, but I, I have a theory about Sorkin. Uh, and I'm not popular with certain people because I really personally am not in love with The West Wing, which I know makes me whatever. No, that's okay. It was, it was hit or miss. I will, I mean, I love The West Wing, but, um... I think like the entirety of it, like it's not something that's like completely strong start to finish. I think that like the first years are fantastic. But anyway, no, enough about me. Continue. Well, no, what are I, your thoughts? I I'm curious. You is important, so this is it's a dialogue. <laughs> so, but what I think is that, um, and this is particularly too when you get into, uh, it's what is it called the the newsroom, uh, like when he is responsible for developing his own stories and his dialogue, mm-hmm. he. He is incapable of designing a story that is at all interesting. Yeah. He's very structurally weak, which is the Farnsworth invention's problem. Like he doesn't have mm-hmm. an arc. He's trying to get these two um, major personalities together, and no one who knows who Philo Farnsworth is. So he's basically sort of inventing a personality for Farnsworth yeah. that he has to sort of juxtapose with the raw arrogance of Sarnoff mm-hmm. and try to tell a story that way, and doesn't really succeed and Ben Brantley famously referred to it as an animated Wikipedia entry (laughs) which is how it feels like it's a series Mm -hmm. of facts presented by but and no one inhabits a point of view but then you get to the social network he didn't write that story that's based on a book by Ben Meserich Mm -hmm. uh, with a much worse title (laughs) Um, David Fincher is providing all of the other like creative animus uh, Mm -hmm. for it Anima, not animus, because that means um, I was anger thinking about your enemy. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> um, whenever I think of the word anima, I always think of Gross Point Blank. I've never seen it. Oh, okay. It uh, has an excellent soundtrack, but I've yes, never it does. seen the movie. Yeah, uh, there's a great moment. Anyway, um, I'm squirreling all over this story. But the it's point really is, fine. point is, he's great at the social network because he's not responsible for the story. Somebody else handled all of mm-hmm. those details, and that lets Aaron Sorkin do the thing that he is best at, which is like incisive walk and talk, dialogue, just cutting to the heart of something, letting you experience just disdain for another human being, Mm -hmm. which he's very good at writing. Oh, hey. (laughs) What's up? Am I interrupting something? We're like filming a podcast. All right. (laughs) (laughs) That was our house manager, Rob Montenegro, one of my favorite people. (laughs) See, now we're also getting into like... We should probably mention that we are in the house manager's closet. Yes, we should. Yes. At Studio Theater. Yes. Closet um, is strong because there's a lot of pipe action here. There's a lot of pipe action. He's <laughs> the best. Um, I probably should have told him that this was happening in here, but that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
private meeting space is hard to come by at the studio theater. If you ever need to take like a personal phone call, it's just impossible. <laughs> um, so I'm just taken to having them out in the open. But anyway, um, back to the, we were talking about Sorkin and saying something interesting. Oh yeah, but, but that's so that's my that's my personal pet theory about Sorkin. Like, is there moments in Farnsworth that are okay? Mm -hmm. But like, he gets the technology wrong and he gets the history of it sort of wrong but not in an yeah. interesting way like I, I i'm not like one of those perfectionists who thinks like his docudrama has to reflect reality exactly yeah. i do think it needs to reduce reality to an essential and in a way that illuminates something about the history that you weren't able to see at the time yeah which doesn't necessarily mean you're hyper accurate but the drift of it like Oh, man, I seriously, I spent so many. Our time on headset was a lot about me being like, and that's wrong. And I mean, you also probably ended up seeing that show more than I did. Fifty <laughs> times. Yeah, they have very like. Well, now at studio, like our runs last like between six and eight weeks. So like, alley theater runs feel like so short. They're what like three weeks long. Uh, like, thirty six shows for the for upstairs and uh, forty downstairs. Wow. Wow. Except for Christmas Carol, which is forty eight. <laughs> Do they still do Christmas Carol? Yes, they do. Of course they do. They're going to do a new one, too. Really? Well, they're going to restage the... Oh, that's right, because they're moving into yeah, the space this You can't year. do it the way you used to do it. It's, it was so weird when they announced the renovation, because I remember like sitting in meetings about that in like 2008, um, and you just sort of realize, and then it's like, oh, yes, time passing. That was a, quite a long time ago, and now it's actually a reality. Um, well, and my friends, so I was hired at, in 2006, and the people who hired me had been there for three or four years before that. And now Brian... Was it Keith who hired you? Oh, no, Clint hired me. Clint? Oh, yeah, the, before my time. Um, and uh, so Brian Flory, who is now... Okay, so this, this is fun. Brian Flory is the board op at Shakespeare Theater at the mm -hmm. Harmon. Okay. So he went to back to Texas to a different theater and I took over his job but he's from Houston oh okay so he used to work at the alley I feel like everybody who that at some point or another worked at the alley yeah. if you live in Houston you work in theater <laughs> I think it's, it's inevitable it's really the only game in town like everybody else is I mean I oh that's not true you're right that's not fair and it's it's interesting because I was just in Houston and I was talking to um, JC Little mm, who mm -hmm. um Worked worked with me as a dramaturg at the Alley Theater when I was there, and she's also now the AD of Horsehead Theater. Um, oh, Horsehead, yeah, yeah. Um, she's also just like in general, like a total like smarty pants badass, um, like making things happen. But um, like she was saying that, like, because we we were having this conversation. I mean, because when I was there, like the Alley just feels like such an insular environment. Mm -hmm. Um, in part because you're just always in that building that it's actually very hard to get out and like see other things. Like I did not see a lot of theater while I was there because I was so consumed with the work that I was doing. Yes. Um, but JC, but when I did, like I actually think that there's like a real ecosystem of theaters mm. there. Um, it's just not as like the same way that like DC theater is. Mm -hmm. Like I feel mm -hmm. like DC theater is very like, there are 85 theater companies here and everybody has their own sort of like niche, but like it feels like more like a community where I feel that community in Houston exists. It's just like you have that sort of like flagship and then there's everybody else. But mm -hmm. I think, but I really do think that there are people working hard there to like make things happen. Well, like, Horsehead you know, in general. There's Horsehead yeah. in general. And one of, I saw some of like the best shows um, at Horsehead, Horsehead, what do they do? They did something at the Brewery Tap and then they did some Adam Rapp play, Essential Self-Defense at Freneticore. That was like one of the most like insane design experiences. Um, 
And JC right now is like directing a one man Moby Dick in like a geodome, like <gasps> in the bio. In the bio, it's amazing. Clint Allen is actually designing the projections yeah. for that. <laughs> she was telling me all about it. It sounds great. Um, and there's lots of people doing interesting stuff. There, you've got like Main Street, you've got like Street, Naked, Street, yeah. um, and Philip Lale, who is like lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I feel like there's there's stuff happening there. Um, so I just wish that I had more time to actually go and see it when I was there. Yeah, yeah. Did you like Houston? I loved Houston. City? I was I was not expecting to like it. I went to school yeah. in Austin. I was yeah. like, Austin's super chill. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's very clearly like fault lines between sure. students and yuppies mm-hmm. in Austin, and it's much more tor- like the drag was is completely gentrified at the point. Like yeah. it happened while I was there. It's like all of the old mm-hmm. stores just disappeared. But so I was like prepared for Dallas level like corporate oh there's so much money in Houston and it's gonna be terrible but it's super chill it's such a great I I likewise did not expect to like it I came from Pittsburgh um you came from Pittsburgh I did we're gonna come back to that (laughs) I did um but I you know I went down there for the job and I had never been to Texas I'd never been anywhere (laughs) I had never been anywhere within like a 500 mile (laughs) radius um and I'm also like you know born and raised like uppity progressive New Englander like went to Lady College like I I never had like any sort of um I hope that means uh Smith no Bryn Mawr but oh um, there yeah seven absolutely sisters. there you um, go and I call it Lady College just to sort of dismiss like that sounds dismissive but it's not it's wonderful Bryn Mawr's the best um but uh like I hadn't been like anywhere in the vicinity of Houston had no context for it and I had this intense culture shock for like the first six months that I lived there because mm-hmm. it's not just like sort of like dealing with like the culture and because I found people like in general very friendly yeah yeah um very friendly very like well-spoken like very intellectual like sometimes you get this sort of like little undercurrent of sexism that kind of like creeps up on you um and it just sort of reminds you a little bit like ah uh, yes um but not overt in the ways that yeah. you're expecting the right. sort of like swaggery bro whatever I didn't encounter that a lot um I think it was more like the landscape for me that was very jarring yes. because Houston is massive. It's huge, and like when you tell people, it's like the it's like the fourth largest city in the United States. That's why population is the by fourth population. largest. population, but also like just in like sheer size. Like my best friend lived in Clear Lake, and oh, another wow. one of my friends. I know it was it was the struggle was real. Um, <laughs> and another one of my friends lived in North Houston, and they were fifty miles apart, but yep. they were still in Houston. Um, it's just like it's gigantic. It's like yeah. the sprawl is crazy. Do you remember Brandon Hernsberger? Um, no, he was, was in a like he was around. He was no. Oh yes, yeah, yes, of I'm course here. I do. Of course yeah. I do. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Actor, he lived yeah. in Katy. I don't know how people like actually do those commutes. Yeah. Um, because also like driving in Houston is just like a contact sport. Um, it's insane. It's insane. But um, I lived. Where did I live? I lived over by Central Market in Highland nice. Village for like. <laughs> most of the time that I was there and then towards the like end of my tenure there I moved to Midtown um which now feels totally different when I go back to visit oh like, really it's so built yeah oh it feels very very different um but and I spent a lot of time a good friend of mine lived like in a what is it it's like sixth war it's like right near Beavers like where yeah. Beavers uh-huh. like Dark yeah. Horse mm-hmm. and Catalina mm-hmm. like that little neighborhood yeah. there which yeah. I loved um which in many ways felt almost like a second home for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, but now all of my friends, like I go back, but they've all bought like houses in like Spring Branch. Because it's <laughs> cheap. Like, wait, yeah. time out. 
your mortgage payment is less than I would pay it's, in it's, rent. It's insulting. <laughs> um, and they have like, you know, I go and I get to like stay in their guest room and, <laughs> and it's crazy. And then they come visit me and I'm like, please sleep on my couch in my group house. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But they're totally game for it. But I, yeah, it's crazy. Like if I yeah. lived there, if I was still there, I probably would have ended up buying a house, um, which feels like so far away from any sort of current reality. Um, but I loved it. There's so much to do. And like now, yeah. like it's one of my, it's such a crazy, weird city. I don't think that I could move back. Um, I feel like I had my time. <laughs> but uh, but it was a great place to live between the ages of 23 and 26. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed my time there. Yeah. I have that, I have that, I mean, I have that same in- feeling of insularity within, within the theater. But that's also sh- because I was a board op in general. Yeah. Because um, I felt that in DC for as long as I was at Shakespeare, mm-hmm. because just, but just being a board app completely you live like this like you off. weird nocturnal, but not really like like yeah. nocturnal indoor existence. Um, yeah, and you see a lot of theater by volume, but not a lot by breadth. Mm-hmm. I you know I saw yeah. everything that Shakespeare Theater produced. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. all we did eighty four shows for the reps for Henry Ford part one and two between part one and two is 84 performances that's it was a lot (laughs) the crazy I like life-changing the experience with that crew was literally life-changing wow and then I left and then you left and what are you doing now are you like freelancing about town yeah I'm sort of trying to transition so um I originally left the alley because I wanted to direct really um and I moved to New York for that purpose Uh uh-huh that was after I spent a year getting rejected by every single regional theater that has a directing internship (laughs) program Mm -hmm. my favorite rejection letter of which there were two um and that's between like 30 applications I got two rejections you only got two like responses like formally rejecting you yes those I I very much appreciate Milwaukee rep for doing that um that was delightful they also told me that I didn't have enough directing experience to be an intern for them yeah, that's like, I, my heart goes out to directing fellowship applicants because it's like you do want, I mean, we also have one here and it's hard because you do want people who have like, who are firmly entrenched in early career because they're going yeah. to get something out of it. But like, it's one of the hardest things to break out from afterwards because there's not really like entry level positions like there's not really a structure for it it's kind of like it's one of the hard things about literary too it's like that's why you see a lot of literary interns a lot of literary fellows but there's not a lot of literary assistant jobs Mm, to start mm -hmm. off um and that's why i mean i sort of like not really floundered for a year but like did something a little bit different before i managed to like get back into lit Mm -hmm. um so no that is that is the struggle yes (laughs) i well and i have a my problem is i didn't go to school for theater me neither. <laughs> Yay. Good. I, yeah, I went to school. Well, I originally went to school for engineering, but then I got a degree in German. Awesome. And Germanic studies, which is why I love dramaturgs. I feel a kindred spirit because of critical theory is like my jam. Like I specialized <laughs> in postmodernity and its roots in German romantic notions of irony. Um, impressive. Yeah, it sounds impressive. But <laughs> Was this at UT? This is at UT, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That was probably I was I might have been one of the last people to get completely just paid to be a German student. It was amazing. Like hmm. I got, I didn't have to teach either. 
They were just like, yeah, yeah you just we'll just pay you to come here. And this was for undergrad? This is for graduate school. For grad school. Oh, yeah. wow. Where'd you go to undergrad? I went to Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Oh, great. Yeah. That's like, they're the ones that are affiliated with Cleveland Playhouse, right? Yes. Now. Okay, cool. Yes. And, well, they. I mean, the Cleveland Institute of Art and uh, yeah. the Cleveland Institute of Music. Like You've been like every... So, wait a minute. So, just sort of <laughs> tracking through. So, you've done Houston, you've done Austin, you've done Cleveland... Um, you did Louisville. Mm-hmm. You did New York. Mm-hmm. You were in DC. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was a Pittsburgh story, given that I mentioned yes. Pittsburgh earlier. When yes, were you... we should double back on that. Okay. <laughs> I went to, so um, I knew when I was getting my German degree, I have a master's, uh-huh. uh, but it was it was one of the great things about that program. This is a great program, like fantastic generalist program. Yeah. And uh, one of the great things about it is that it gives you a terminal master on your way to your PhD. So like, oh, nice. I was actually in the PhD program, but they have you the opportunity to get a master's so you could right. reevaluate. Got it. And I realized I didn't really like academia mm-hmm. all that terribly much. And I'd been wanting to do film. I had actually applied to film schools after mm-hmm. I got out of grad school, but again, I didn't go to undergrad for film, so the <laughs> you don't have anything on your resume it's very hard for people yeah. to take a chance on you so I decided to try that again except I had a group of friends who were attending the University of Pittsburgh oh there um, we go <laughs> so I spent uh, I got my third degree in mm-hmm. film studies from the University of Pittsburgh in from 2000 spring of 2005 and then 2006 wow well I was there that was just before I was there because um, I was there 2007. Are you Pitt? No. Or I Neither. I was not there for school. Oh. Um, I worked at City Theater Company. Oh, yeah. I cool. Was, yeah. I was there uh, 2007 through 2008. I was only there for a year, which is kind of crazy because it feels like much, much longer. Um, but I was the company manager and the assistant to the artistic director. Whoa. Um, yeah. Two jobs that should never not really be together. done by the same yeah. person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was... Um, it was actually like a really great learning experience because I didn't know, like City Theater is so small um, and they actually do like really interesting new work um, in contemporary plays. But um, I didn't really have like any sense of like a organizational structure in a theater. Um, oh and, yeah, right. And working in both of those, like when you work in like essentially like you straddle that like world of like artistic and administrative and production. Like I ended up learning everything, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like has served me really well. Um, as I've moved on to really more focusing on like literary and dramaturgy. But um, I loved Pittsburgh too. Pittsburgh is so a great. gem. Yeah. And I hate all, oh God, I hate all of these articles where they're like, Pittsburgh is the new Austin, Pittsburgh <laughs> is the new Brooklyn. I'm like, don't you dare ruin that like glorious, glorious city with your garbage. I, no, no, leave Pittsburgh alone. Um, yes. I go back a lot. A lot of my very good friends Oh, good. Still That's there. awesome. Yeah. Uh, I don't go back as often as I should, considering that it's only like four and a half hours away from here. <laughs> it's bad. Actually, like, it's like a 45-minute flight, um, <laughs> which is so much better than like the indignity of the Megabus. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. Even though the Megabus is super cheap, but um, but it's great. All my friends now, like, of course, like when we lived there, when we were 22, we lived on the south side. Yep. Um, and now they've all moved to Dormont. Um, <laughs> you know, like you do. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I love Pittsburgh very much. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I could go back there. It's we'll interesting. I feel like it's theater community is under the radar. There's quite a lot of there's a very theater st- happening there. There's a lot of theater happening there. And it, I feel like it's also emboldened by like having two very, like three very strong university yeah. programs. Um, and I think it's attractive in the cost of living. It's so cheap to live there. I think my apartment was like $400. I mean, there was no air conditioning. Um, and it was very no frills. Um, but it's just like, it's delightful. 
Um, and another place where people are like very, very friendly. So. Yeah, they are that. Yeah. We, um, one of my favorite stories was that we lived above a record store. Sorry, I'm not anywhere near the mic on that one. <laughs> I apologize, listeners. I have a bit of a cold, so I was trying to spare you the uh, indignity. Uh, anyway, um, I lived above a record store that was mm-hmm. rented to us by a woman who lived just north of Soldiers and Sailors. Okay. And we were on the same block as Antunes on Atwood Street, which if you're poor... Is this like Oakland? Yeah. Okay, cool. If you're poor and a student, you will you will have had a pizza, a $4 or $5 cheese pizza, which they make by the gross. Yeah. Because um, they're open till 2 a.m. and it's $5 and they, just so many students need it that they... <laughs> like. It's not even made to order. It's just there's a pile by the door, like five cheese pizzas, no sweat. That sounds like all of my hopes and dreams encapsulated was, oh in like one thing. <laughs> the, uh, so it was enormous as far as we were concerned because we lived in yeah. the dorms and Pitt's dorms are super small. They're from a legacy of the Cold War and they're like mm-hmm. mon- monastery cells. Um, most of them are like, it's enough for a single bed. Mm-hmm. The one I was in anyway, it's enough for a single <laughs> bed, um, a radiator and a sink. Oh God. And, and that's basically it. And I lived on the courtyard of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So whenever the medevac helicopter landed, you knew about it for <laughs> a good 15 minutes before and after it landed. Yeah. Uh, so we moved into this like palatial. By Pittsburgh standards. Yes. Four bedroom place that we were getting for $1,000 a month, which is insane. It was two stories, had a full kitchen, four full bedrooms mm-hmm. and a living room. Um, but it wasn't particularly well insulated. And it was yep. gas heat. Oh. So. No good. Yeah. We got into that period of time where it starts to get cold. And like, also, I mean, the Pittsburgh winter, like, takes no prisoners. No. It's, it can be pretty brutal. So in December, we got our bill from November, which wasn't that cold. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it was $650 for the gas bill. Oh, my God. And we're like, that's a mistake, right? And we did the meter reading. No, that's not a no. mistake. Oh, so no. we turned off the gas. The only thing the gas. Well, we turned off the heat. Yeah. The only thing the gas was used for was hot water mm-hmm. and cooking. And that was one of the coldest winters I have ever spent oh, no. anywhere. <laughs> and uh, But it was awesome. The place was awesome. And I lived with the, some of those people are, uh, they're doing really well in like LA and they have podcasts yeah. and all kinds of stuff. That was, one of them, he works at the patent office and lives in Philadelphia and travels all over the place. Well, who are these glamorous I know, I don't understand leave. it either. What are they? <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we d- we had another topic that was we did. Um, I mean, there are which, so many topics which you can check it out on if you want. I am I am a fearless woman. All right, because let's do this. It came up. Um, uh, oh, yes, I remember. it's occurring. It's occurring to you. <laughs> it's uh, so yeah. I spent some time recently on Match.com. Oh, the glorious world of online dating. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. and I was. Uh, blown away by Matcha comes. I have never mm. done. I I am not currently on any sort of online things. I just needed like a pause for the cause. But um, <laughs> like, but I've never done Match.com. So like, what is there like compared to like other sort of like things? Like what 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 did you find like most egregious about your experience? Okay, so <laughs> um, Match.com was my first. So I didn't I don't have I didn't have anything to compare it with at the time. The first thing that like slams you in the face is like, okay, 
you have to spend money to get in the door, like yeah. to be inside the walled garden. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea behind in my but isn't that sort of like oh, then these are people that are like actually like a little serious about oh yeah, of, like pursuing that's the this? assumption. Like, isn't that, that the I assumption that well. you're making? Yeah. Yes. I, and I'm a nerd too. So like analytics wise, it's like, okay, so we've got a big company. It's gathering a bunch of data from a bunch of people mm-hmm. and the algorithms for matching people are relatively sophisticated. So the idea is once I get behind the wall garden, it's going to be higher quality. And the one thing that you can mm-hmm. guarantee as opposed to being meeting someone in a bar where you meet someone in a bar, whatever, yeah. like they're not necessarily there to like be meeting people. They're exactly. just there being human beings. Yeah, like everybody has the sort of like same mission statement going into it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But so I assumed that they would be organizing an efficient marketplace. <laughs> I Like I said, I'm a nerd. This is going to get nerd. Yes. An efficient marketplace. Also a man of very high expectations, <laughs> which is, you know, always appreciated. Yeah. But what I found was that every opportunity for efficiency mm-hmm. was an opportunity to ask you for money. Oh. They're like, okay, so Ugh. it's 15%. Per- like they even give you statistics. Like, okay, you liked her. That's great. That doesn't yeah. do anything. I'm using that pronoun because that's my predilection, but there is a more sure. appropriate pronoun for that situation. <laughs> of course. Continue. <laughs> um, 15, per- 15 times more likely to contact you back and like develop a relationship if you email them Mm -hmm. so like okay uh this person you know like oh they're from pittsburgh and they speak german too oh that's fascinating uh i can i can tell them a story that i feel like is or even better i discovered someone on there who actually used to work for shakespeare theater company and i was like that's hilarious i worked for shakespeare (laughs) theater company what the hell uh well i didn't say what the hell but Mm -hmm. i thought it was nicely calibrated but you have to pay money to send and receive emails, right? So there are some people who haven't paid money to send and receive emails. So it just like ends up being a barrier to like potential communication and like eternal love. And the best part about it is, is like you can guarantee that they get it regardless of whether they spend the money or not if you spend the extra money. Oh, I don't like that. No, exactly. It's like emotional blackmail. That's horrific. I mean, yeah. I mean, I will actually like, I don't know. I, I have, this is part of the reason why I like, just don't pay for things a because i'm lazy but b like there's just i don't know that's interesting i actually like didn't really have like terrible experiences like a lot of other people i think that i ended up going out with like people who like ended up being pretty great i'm just way more interested in sort of like the way that people curate like it's their personalities oh, on these things yeah. which i find fascinating yeah um like just like the version of yourself that you're presenting yes. and like how authentic or inauthentic that is. Um, because I think that I definitely like, you know, tried to like curate some sort of like youthful pithy version of myself, um, which may not be the like real accurate representation of who I am and what I want, but it just like, oh, it was so interesting. I ended up like, I met somebody out in the real world um, and for a variety of reasons, like didn't work out, whatever. Um, and then was on one of these things and found his profile. Oh. And, but it was like the profile of this person like ended up bearing like no resemblance to the person that I met. Like I wouldn't have, like reading this, I'm just like, I have never been like less attracted to a human being in my life. Like just reading this. But like in person, I was like completely smitten. So it's just like, it was so like that sort of like dichotomy I find like completely fascinating. Um, yeah. I also, I also ended up finding one of my coworkers on Tinder, but um, we matched and had like a whole lovely back and forth, <laughs> just for fun. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I actually anyway. think t- I admire Tinder's 
directness. It's super direct. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I mean, a lot of my friends have, like, several of my friends are in relationships now with people that they've met on Tinder. So I, you know, I don't know. Whatever works for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, I like Malcolm Gladwell's work a lot. Mm-hmm. And Blink is a really interesting text. I haven't read that. Uh, well, like, so the, the basic idea is that our instinct, our, if you have a question that is yes or no, you should probably just let your gut handle the question hmm. because you spend actually a lot of time generally speaking if you're making a decision that can be reduced to a yes or no you've been doing a lot of research to get to that point and your yeah. brain has already come to a conclusion even if your conscious thought hasn't gotten to it yet hmm. so that's what tinder taps into it's like you're it's just a visceral yes or no reaction don't think about it don't don't analyze it don't get too far into yeah. it just do 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 and your instincts are probably better mm-hmm. that way without the without the facade of somebody else presenting themselves yeah well and i also think that also applies to like corresponding with people in these sort of forums is like there's always a limit to like what you can like ascertain about who somebody is through like because some people are just like better through written communication yeah. mm-hmm. um and then in person they're just like a just like have like a little bit of a different um different vibe and you only know that like there's always that sort of like intangible thing that you're not going to figure out until you're in front of another person so I like I think that the key to all of that is to like not have that sort of like extended conversation in this Mm -hmm. kind of like space um, and to just like meet somebody and you'll know I mean maybe that's just me Um, but there's a lot to that I think yeah especially since ultimately that kind of relationship is about like actual personal connection exactly and that digital nether space doesn't isn't yeah and there's always like some sort of like again like intangible quality that you can't quite sort of like put in a profile um you can't certainly can't do it intentionally on your own yeah exactly (laughs) and i'm also somebody who like looks way too into like the nuance of words and etc so i'm like just prone to like judge on something that like isn't actually representative representative of who somebody is um anyway oh that's 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 part that kills me there are definitely times (laughs) i'm like I feel bad about myself because of the way that I'm judging people based on like the criteria is like yeah this is silly like I mean I I you know I am a lady who loves grammar but I'm not like and I try really hard like I mean if you sort of like use a semicolon incorrectly like I understand like semicolons are tricky but um you know just sort of like a certain like verbal and written um Sort of like sense of like smartness would be great. Yeah, I'm yeah, not no, really I, talking like like an intellectual right now, <laughs> but um, you know, you try to discern that. But right, a, a sense that there is a, a sort of style beyond brunt communication. Yeah, to the use of words, mm-hmm. <laughs> and also like sometimes being a lady on those things is a little hard. That's what's um, interesting to me as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I didn't really like you sort of like get it and it's just like all right bro like to the left um like it's not and i never felt like super harassed um and most of the time it was just kind of comical um some guy told me this is my favorite thing um some guy was like you look like a hot abigail adams and i was like wait hold on like are you just picking somebody like vaguely victorian looking or is there some sort of like historical reference that i'm missing like so then i started like looking and i'm like i don't really know abigail adams and i'm like why am i trying to dramaturg this like i really don't think that this is like an in-depth comment that this dude is making but um i don't know abigail adams is a badass so I was yes just like, she is yeah she was a total badass um so I don't think he was making that direct correlation, but no. I got a lovely little history lesson out of it. So that, that's what I gleaned. Um, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I see most of 
most of the pictures I can think of her off the top of my head have her head covered, so I don't know. That yeah, this... like we actually bear no physical resemblance to one another, <laughs> so I think that he was he was just picking somebody like vaguely sort of maybe president. I yeah, don't know. I, don't know. Yeah. I probably shouldn't analyze it too deeply. No. I didn't respond. <laughs> so. But um, I don't know. It turned into a great meme between me and my friends, just sort of sending <laughs> each other back and forth pictures of like Abigail Adams and being like, Abigail Adams doesn't have time for for your shit, man. She's got like a revolution to help sort of like con- be a co-conspirator part of. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yes, yes. I I encountered her. So one of my um, my grandma and I, um, she. I used I used to read books a lot more. The, the Twitter yeah. has taken care of my ability to read books, <laughs> but um, when I do get around to books, like um, we, she buys me uh, for Christmas a book about some mm-hmm. uh, fa- founding father, mm-hmm. and uh, then eventually she'll read it as well. <laughs> and uh, so very early on, we we had gotten onto I think it's is McCullough who wrote that yeah sort of kicked that off with yes. 1776 and John Adams mm-hmm. and. Um, it's quite good, and but learning about Abigail in particular is really fascinating. See, I haven't read that. I haven't read a lot of his- historical fiction, and I'm trying to like vary up the genres that I've been reading, mm-hmm. just because when you have to read so many plays, yeah, um, which is like a total joy, but like when it is your job, sometimes it can be a little bit of a bit of a slog. Um, playwrights out there, I like totally love you. This is more about just like the volume and like the fatigue. Oh, yeah. That like I, I mean, I actually think fatigue among literary managers is something that's like very prevalent. Um, but one of the things that I try to do to combat that is I try to do expose myself to different mediums. But like historical fiction isn't one that we've tackled. Um, I joined a book club Ooh. this past fall. I know LMDA should like give me an award um, <laughs> for being a dramaturg in a book club. But um, and we've been trying to read a lot of genres too, but we haven't read a good historical fiction. But um, I feel like that John Adams book is like 900 pages, though, which it is, is probably that, like a yes. little outside of the realm of possibility That's for true. what book club, we can not achieve. book club territory. Yeah. yeah. True. Um, but yeah. Well, if you're looking to read more books, you should totally join. <laughs> it's the best. It's called Sparkle Thunder. I love it already. Um, it's the sort of... <laughs> so I go into the Blind Dog Cafe a lot, which is on the corner of... Uh, Ninth in Florida, um, and I was a regular there, and I was always in there reading. And the staff, when the day they were like, "Lauren, we're like starting this book club. Do you want to be a part of it?" I was like, "Do I want? Uh, this is like all of my hopes and dreams. It's like caffeine and books, and like lovely people who want to talk about both of them." Um, and it's great because I'm like, you know, it's also nice to talk about things with people that also don't work in th- work in theater, because um, I feel like that is the majority of my social circle. Absolutely. Um, so it just means that I'm like the most pretentious person in the book club. But if you can get past that, uh, it's great. We've read a lot of really good stuff. We're reading Americana this month, which is amazing. Oh. I usually don't recommend books when I'm halfway through them, but I think this book is incredible. Um, but yeah, Americana, you should totally read that. Oh, yeah. Okay. If this was like Culture Gab Fest, that would totally be one of my endorsements at the end of it. <laughs> uh, why not? I mean, it's podcast. One podcast can morph into another <laughs> podcast at any given moment. I mean, yeah, my burgeoning media empire here, so. Yes, that's my hope, actually. <laughs> sort of only jokingly, but yeah. mostly. So one of the things that I do, uh, it, well, that's a silly way to put it. One of my favorite podcasts mm-hmm. is called Film Spotting. Oh, okay. Um, and it's a weekly conversation. It's mostly about, it's mostly between two guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they it's organized around, it, movies is a little easier than with theater because, you know, yeah. there's, there's, one release, either a major blockbuster or a prestige film, that it's very clear that uh, that they're both critics. So yeah. like, 
that critics need or want to see. So mm. it's pretty easy. But they also do things like marathons. They did it. I'm behind on the marathon, but they did a Sajid Ray marathon, who's like an Indian filmmaker who I've never seen a single frame of his film, but mm. I should because as someone who loves cinema and the history of cinema, I yeah. that's I absolutely owe it to him. <laughs> yeah. And do their like opinions normally fall in line or do they often find themselves at odds with each other? Like or is it just like two friends kind of like talking about movies? They uh it's in, it's it's a really long podcast, so it's like an hour and a half. So okay. it covers a lot of times they will be at loggerheads over whether it is any good or not. Mm-hmm. But it also they often start with something that feels like written patter, and then they'll finally get beyond the written patter, and then they'll talk about like their emotional reaction to it as informed mm. by their critical existence, and then they'll go into the top five and stuff about, and they do other games and stuff after that. Cool. But what I love about it is that it is um, it, it is a conversation with a history. Like it's yeah. these two people have talked about movie movie after movie. So there's constantly there's a, there's a a sense of you as the audience being able to understand where you think they're going to go with it and all of because that. Because you're invested in their relationship <coughs> and in their like sort of cinematic history. Of right, exactly. And like okay. you've learned cinema. I learned a bunch about cinema from the things that they've been enthused about and I've ended up seeing. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think that, like I said, the theatrical season is a little more difficult to organize a conversation around one theater piece because there's always way more than one opening at any given yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Certainly in like, like in... Washington, there's so mm-hmm. many opening at a given point. At some yeah. level, you're sort of like... There's always... I've just come to accept that there's always more plays that I'm going to see. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do feel like Washington, D.C. could benefit probably from more than one. But like yeah. a, a continuing conversation between... A, I don't think it has to be two people. Uh, it could mm-hmm. be more than two people, like three or four, like the Gabfest or whatever. And yeah. um, But that it's a consistent group of people experiencing... Uh, theater at the same time the same theater at the same time and being able to talk so because you you want to be able to talk the great thing about it is they can talk in depth about it like Mm -hmm. they try to avoid spoilers but um but they talk about the details of it yeah and my favorite podcast that i've done so far Mm -hmm. is the nexus podcast where i watched the show and then got to talk to the actors afterwards so we we really got to sink our teeth into a piece of drama yeah and I enjoy the crap out of that, and I do, th- and I would enjoy the crap out of listening to it. And I do think yeah. that needs to exist. I think so. I mean, I don't. I mean, I feel like people are having those dialogues on their own, but I don't know. That I agree. An yeah. Actual like form for that, and I think that could be interesting. I also like. I mean, but then like the tricky thing is like part of the thing that I love, and like one of the things I love about working in theater is the sort of ephemeral nature of it. Oh, that's true. So yeah. it's like I see something one night, you see something three nights later. They could be like completely different. Um, but I like, but if you're all sort of like experiencing the whole thing at the same time and then reflecting on it, then I think that's like totally interesting. Well, on the, board. Yeah. Or okay. I also think it's interesting to have a, I mean, not that it's not interesting to like have a conversation about something when people have experienced it in like a multitude of ways. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, either or. On board, make this happen. <laughs> that's so. That's part. That's the next step in the uh, in the media empire. Excellent. And actually, I think the one of the things that would be the most important about it is that it doesn't happen on opening night. Like, yeah, you all go see something that's like in the teeth of its run, yeah. or maybe it's close to closing. Or like, I think watching something over a preview period could be really. Oh, interesting. that's a very good point. Um, yeah. because just seeing how like shows change during previews, um, they can bear like no resemblance sometimes the first preview to what's on opening night. And opening night always has its own sort of like agenda that sometimes exactly. doesn't really yeah like line up with sort of like the art of the play. But um, yeah, 
Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think it would be interesting to do something like that here at studio just because we do have these long runs and like plays like naturally like shift in like very interesting ways, but also like actors like really like start and like really like lean in and like embody their characters. Um, So I just think that that could yield like cool conversation. Yes. It comes from my time as a board up, like finally seeing something the 30th time. I'm like, yeah. Oh, I think I actually understand this play mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And then I think about the review. I'm like, it's just—it's not fair to the reviewer, who is definitely yeah. smarter than than smart enough to know the problems with reviewing things on press night. Mm-hmm. But it's, and it's not fair to the play, and it's not fair to the production. It's, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. it's better. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything else that, that we, we were going to talk about? I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to think. I mean, we definitely covered Houston. Yes. Covered Pittsburgh. And you know, the fabulous world of online dating. <laughs> I don't know. We didn't oh, we didn't talk about like serious dramaturgy business, but that's okay. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> we didn't. No. But um <laughs> that's fine. That's no, okay. I mean I am like <laughs> I tell I tell people that all the time like hey, this this is not an interview it's a conversation and that it's yeah. the conversation is whatever you want it to be so we could talk about dramaturgy if you want but if you don't if you just want to it is what it is that's yeah. also fine no it's fine I mean I do think it's I <laughs> I did like that we found a little kinship over like not having traditional theater backgrounds just because oh I yeah don't. and sometimes like having serious dramaturgy conversations to me is feels like a little like because I just have like a very different experience of how I came to dramaturgy and like my trajectory and I don't have trajectory maybe I can actually say that word right um and you know I don't have this like formal education in it um which I think is very rare among a lot of dramaturgs that like not just that I didn't go to grad school but I didn't really study it but I ended up studying a lot of other different things um so yeah so sometimes that those conversations always like yield something unexpected but well <laughs> the other thing that this podcast is generally about is people's trajectories. So, oh yeah, we don't have to talk about serious dramaturgy things at all. But so, what is your my background? My background. Um, so, like everybody else, I started off as an actor um, huh. in like high school, but I was very serious about it. Um, and I thought that I was like going to go to a conservatory, mm. and then I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon pre-college when I was in high school, um, and realizing, oh no, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Um, this is like a little too competitive and actually like I have a lot of other interests and if I'm going to go to a conservatory that's all I'm going to do um, so I ended up going to Bryn Mawr um, and I studied like a lot of different things and at the time I was just taking sort of courses and like things that I was interested in um, I was an English major but I also did a lot of creative writing I did mm. a lot of art history and like film studies um, mostly because I just wanted to write movies and yeah. yeah how many papers did I write about Vertigo um, <sighs> as many as I could yes <laughs> um, but um, and I also did like a little theater on the side. I have like a sordid musical theater pass, which we don't talk about. But um, and uh, and no, and like one day I remember like the theater department was like doing a production of Three Sisters, and they posted oh. that they were looking for a dramaturg. And I went in there. I was like, "What's that?" And they said, "Oh, well, we need someone to do like a little bit of background research for us, and then you'd come to like runs and give notes on like the storytelling and emotional arcs, and we'll need someone to like do a little bit of the program stuff." And like it all sounded like all these disparate tasks that I was like very game to do but I didn't really put together that it was a job <laughs> um but um but I did that and I had a great time and then I was just like oh maybe I should like look into this and um I ended up getting a literary internship at the O'Neill oh um, wow that summer yeah um and just because I was you know I'm like oh this sounds like it might be a good fit for me um and that was when I was just like oh this this is what I want to do um because 
working in the lit office at the O'Neill, those people are like rock stars to playwrights. Um, and you're like, it was just fantastic. I had never been in a new play process. I was totally mm-hmm, green. Mm-hmm. I was definitely in my intern class that year, I was the person who came in with the least amount of experience and knowledge, um, hadn't read anything, didn't had no context for what I was doing at all. Um, but I was just really nice and showed up on time and like learned how to fix the copier. And that actually like went a long way. Um, and I ended up going back the next year to like actually co-run the office mm. with um, with the staff. And then I was just like, I think I might want to like do this. But um, I didn't want to go to grad school right away because Bryn Mawr was pretty intense mm. um, academically. And so I ended up, that's how I ended up in Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, and I was there for a year and I was thinking like, like it was, company management wasn't for me. It was like a very good sort of character building year. Um, but I didn't think that I wanted to make a career in it, but um, be very kind to company managers. They are, yes, they are the heroes <laughs> of, of the American theater. Um, but and then a friend of mine from the O'Neill called and said, "Hey, so the Alley Theater is looking for a literary manager, um, <laughs> and they they're looking for someone to move to Houston. I think that you would be interested in it." And I said, "I looked at that application. I'm just like, dude, I do not have an MFA in dramaturgy. I've never been a production dramaturg. Like, I'm mostly entrenched in this world of like." literary management and I had worked at like a lot of different new play festivals I worked at WordBridge for years and years and years um but I'm like I've never worked in like a formal institution in this way um and I have none of the experience that they're looking for and he's like we'll just talk to the guy so I talked to Mark Bly I said all of this to him like explicitly stated like I am completely unqualified for this position and he's like well just send me your resume so I did and then like three weeks later they called and he's like we want you to come to Houston to see if you want to work here um and I went there, like thinking it was like an interview, but it was really like I already had the job. <laughs> I just didn't know it. Um, yeah, and then I ended up moving there, and I just sort of figured it out. Um, but and I think that there's like learning that way, like trial by fire was like very stressful, a lot of anxiety, um, and sometimes there were many times when I was singing in a rehearsal room that I was like, if I'd gone to Yale, I totally know what to do right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but. Instead, I'm just gonna figure it out this way. Uh, but you know, it's it ended up like working yeah. out really well. I was there for three years, and then at the end of those three years, my boss had left um, to like go back to New York, and I was just sort of like, I feel like I might want to get back to like working primarily on contemporary plays um, because the alley is great in that it like does a little bit of everything. So mm-hmm. I got to work on a Shaw. I got to work on Stopper. Did I got you worked to work on Mrs. Warren's profession. No, I did Pygmalion. Oh, the Pygmalion. I did Pygmalion with Andres Cato, one of my... Yeah, he did. he's the one who directed Mrs. Warren's as well. He was so, so delightful, that man. He's, yeah. Um, that was really the show for me that I... It took me like eight or nine shows of being a production dramaturg of just sort of like trudging through and trying to figure it out. And that was the first show that I was like, I think I kind of know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I think. <laughs> so uh, so I have great affection for that show. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but yeah, I wanted to like do more new work. I had never at that time I hadn't yet dramaturged a world premiere. Um, and I was like, I wanna like be in a place where like I feel like there's a little bit more of like a robust like new play development mm-hmm. and studio was starting a program and they were doing commissioning and they were doing international work, which at the time I didn't really know anything about. Um, so I was just like, I feel like this might be like a good fit. Um, it's also nice to no longer program for 800 seat houses um i don't miss that at all right. <laughs> um yeah. although i'm glad that like 800 plus people are, are going to plays but um there's something about the intimacy of Absolutely. studios spaces yeah. that like really spoke to me and i felt like my personal taste is also very much in line with the type of work that we do here um 
So it's just sort of like ended up feeling like the the right gig. Um, yeah, and I'm I've almost been here for like four years. I mm, guess. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. That would that would yeah. That's yeah. very cool. So yeah. So that's how that's how I ended up here. That's my well crafted personal mythology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love the idea of calling it um, excuse me uh, personal mythology. <laughs> that's. Yeah, that's a measure of my enthusiasm. Is that I, I disturbed the microphone. I'm usually yeah. the one with a good mic discipline, but oh. not this time. That was that's excellent. Uh, <laughs> I actually had the same sort of sort of emotional arc. Um, yeah. Because I, I the first time I did lighting on a like I had worked with a community youth theater and I had done I'd mm-hmm. been there a tech guy, which just meant like vaguely knowing what happens when you plug something in kind of thing. <laughs> I didn't really know anything about lighting. Yeah. I just was a nerd who was around the theater. So, mm-hmm. but then I um, interned and got the job at the alley like immediately after the internship. So I was like huh. vaguely exposed to some professional lighting in a summer stock context. Did you ever have any like design like aspirations to like go into the world of lighting design, or were you? You yeah. seem like your interests are a little bit more varied, which I always think is interesting. But yeah, I. There's always been a thought in the back of my mind because I always wanted to be a filmmaker mm-hmm. or a director. Or, I mean, I and I write like I, t- I told this to, um, I tell this to people all the time. It's like I am I write, but I'm not a playwright. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um. So that's the aspect of lighting design that I really like is the part where you're playing a primary role in the in mm-hmm. the artistic process in the cooperative arti- yeah. the cooperative and collaborative artistic process. I. I I like facilitating the creativity of other people, mm-hmm. um, which is what I imagine a really excellent director does most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what most collaborators do for each other. I right. mean, I feel like that's all dramaturgy is, you know? <laughs> right. Well, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is uh, amazing stuff. I, I always, yeah, I always love reading whatever the dramaturgs have put I'm out. I'm glad and like, somebody reads it because yeah, Lord absolutely. knows I agonize over writing it. But Well, because um. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, it's the same things. Like, I don't, I, if I don't have a context for yeah. for this, then I can't, re- I don't really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to know where did this work come from? Um, why are we doing it now? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what's our, what's our take on it? Mm-hmm. Like, all of that kind of stuff, I think, has to inform the way that you take in a production. Completely. And I mean, and if you're working with like the right collaborators, then everybody's also doing that too. And that's yeah. like the one thing that I really do love about dramaturgy is that it's not just like the singular thing that like one person is doing. And I always try to like dispel the notion that it's like this very like academic, like I'm going to come in and like tell you like, and just like give you all this information and then like float away or like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Or like sort of like the view from up top, like it's not, you're like down, if you're doing it right, hopefully you're like down in the trenches um, yeah. Yeah. With, with it. Yeah. Um, but everyone's kind of doing it. Everyone's sort of working towards the same goal, um, which is, you know, not the most eloquent way of saying that. But <laughs> I think the sentiment is on point. No, I, I agree. Uh, and but but being thrown into theater, I didn't realize that's how theater was made. Yeah, I was kind of appalled at mm-hmm. like the whole eight out of ten, ten out of twelve situations, like. <laughs> This is the most efficient way that we have for doing this. But come on, like you, you make it through a ten out of twelve. Don't you feel like you accomplished something yes. sometimes? But oh my gosh! But now, and and it yeah. was overwhelming at first. It was absolutely yeah. overwhelming. Like I well, and yeah. explaining that like schedule to somebody who doesn't work in theater too, you sound like a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'm gonna be in this dark box for like 
like 12 hours because like let's be real people who are in production departments those 10 hours it's 12 hours like you you are getting maybe 20 minutes to go and eat maybe but you're working during those breaks and you're working during those equity like tens and everything else like you know i think that the the true heroes of the american theater there are many of them but like my affection for production teams and production crews is unparalleled um they really work super hard (laughs) yes yes um, but that I, I that at a certain point I in doing it over and over again uh-huh. and I, I really the, I went through a lot of I went through a lot of stuff personally at yeah. the alley because I was roommates with Joe I don't know if you remember Joe Melissa's yes of course husband I do. now mm-hmm. yeah with that, when he fell from the grid oh god of course so yeah. I that was my them. that was my first season there yeah yeah, yeah. so I was going through a lot mm-hmm. over that over that season after that happened. He happened. He did that uh, while we were loading in a Christmas Carol. But yeah. um, we and when we did Eurydice, we did an astonishingly beautiful production of Eurydice, which was mm-hmm. criminally underseen. Yeah. And I tell people this all the time. When I was in the when I was in the elevator after we're going back to my car, mm-hmm. it was completely evident that everybody who was seeing it toward the end of the run had already seen it. Yeah. Like everyone who saw it saw it again mm-hmm. just not enough people saw it initially which yeah. is a crime because it was beautiful it remains one of i mean the design for that show is like when i think about all the plays that i've seen that josh smith's score yeah. during the moment when they're building the house of string is something that's like seared in my yes in my brain um as one of the most like m- moving things i've seen on stage yeah um in my time but yeah and Rui was uh fantastic to work with he we had to do everything sort of like because the, in the new house is such such a small yeah. space you can't do things like fancy moving lights or no. and <laughs> and you were to see such a quiet piece mm-hmm. you don't want the sound of the moving light in there invading schmidt's like soundscape anyway yeah, yeah. so we did everything like as as old-fashioned as a, like adding specials everywhere and like programming the crap out of all of those moments like the steam and the fall which took forever to get right <laughs> yeah just a simple strobing moment not true at yeah. all no it's that, never just that took like a moment. day to actually get right we did it over and over and over again um but at the end of it i came out of it and mm-hmm. i realized that i was now when i when i do theater the most interesting part mm-hmm. is during tech yeah. Like it used to overwhelm me and now it's the only time that I feel engaged or like alive in the process. Mm-hmm. Which is super weird to me no, thinking I about think it, it backwards. Sense. But yeah. But th- that was that was the moment also like we survived it and we opened the show and everybody was really happy with it and Rui mm-hmm. was very pleased with with how I had done working with him and, and keeping up with him because he's he he thinks very quickly. Yeah. Greg thinks very quickly anyway. Yeah. And Greg uh Greg directs for the rehearsal hall and mm-hmm. then gets into the room and then directs for the room. Yeah. He does not direct for the room in the rehearsal hall, if that makes sense. No. I think to some people listening, it will make loads of sense. <laughs> and it, clearly it makes sense to you. It does. So, But there, and there are those moments when he realizes that what he had done in the rehearsal hall does not work in the room and he changes mm-hmm. it. And a lot of times they are big changes. Yeah. Like our town, we... <sighs> changed the entire feel of the third act oh yeah um and he was right he was right 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's why those tech processes last like a week, right? And <laughs> and, and when I when I got to actors theater and it's like three days. It's oh, like, that's like studio here. Yeah, like, it's like a weekend. It's ridiculous. I can't um, believe it. Well, and I mean, it's not ridiculous, but I just like I just remember feeling like very jarred by that. I was like, what, wait, what do you mean we go into tech on Friday and then our first preview was on Tuesday? Tuesday yeah, like let's. Um, that's that's insane. But um, but that's just the pace that we work at here. And like, I understand. Um, I totally get that pace. And actors yeah. theaters like the the, the the rhythm of actors theater season is all about preparing for humanity festival anyway and that yeah. gets even more insane mm-hmm. but I felt like Greg discovered a lot yeah. over the course of that week and that if he only had those two days the play wouldn't have been as good the mm-hmm. production wouldn't have been as good at the end of it and that happened in a couple times in Eurydice and we were all able to keep up when he yeah. like changed which side of the room <laughs> things were happening on which yeah. sounds simple but, but when lighting wise is not a simple no. change and I mean because I mean it forces like more focus and more hang but yeah um, but I also think that like sometimes those tech process that tech process can be so trying, but it's such a luxury when you have that time. Oh yeah. Um, especially because they don't get on the stage until tech. Right. Um, <laughs> at the alley, which now I mean I can't believe that because we're on stage basically. We have we don't have rehearsal rooms here. Um, oh okay. So essentially they're on set from day one, like as soon as table work is over. Like, oh wow. They stage and we normally it's part of the nice part about having four spaces um, is that you know you can do that from from day one. Um, so I think now about like basically all the decisions that had to be made like before you even got to the theater. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, that was yeah. trailing off into a non-thought, but. No, no, it's a, I, I think that's, I, the, well, I'll put a bow really quickly on what, what I was, I like because yeah, of the intensity of that tech process and how I mm-hmm. well I thought I kept up, I really started to think, because, you know, I, I mean, at that point, I, well, you wouldn't know. I hate when I say that. But um, <laughs> I was, so that would have been, I was about 29 at that time. So okay. I was like, what am I really doing with my life? Like, do mm-hmm. I really want to keep doing this? And what's going on here? And like, finally starting to think about not just reacting to, oh, I need a job, but thinking about what do I want to do mm-hmm. in my life? And I was like, this lighting thing, this part about, this part that I just did, I'm actually kind of good at. Yeah. And thinking that I might be might be something that I would keep doing mm-hmm. as they went on. So, but yes, also the thought that you were introducing, I think is really important to mm-hmm. talk about the modes of production at studio versus at the alley, because that's yes. that's an often overlooked aspect of what and how, what gets produced and how it gets produced. Mm-hmm. It has a dramatic impact on the final product as yeah. well. Not necessarily in a negative, I don't mean that in a, like, it's no, better no, at the no. alley or whatever, but it does, it's, it's sort of practical choices that yeah, change things. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think it's, and it's rare because like the one thing that whenever we have visiting artists, um, the first thing they always say is they're like, oh wait, we're on set from day one. That doesn't happen anywhere else. Um, so it is, it's a total luxury and it's great. And it, but it's also, our spaces are so hard. Um, they're mm. very hard to work in. Um, not so hard to, well, I don't want to say like hard to work in, but but they just take some like getting used to. So actually yeah. mm-hmm. like that time is very necessary. Um, but like they're very shallow. There's we don't really have fly space. We don't really have a lot of wing space, um, and we don't. So we can't really have a lot of like sets that like move. It's like it requires a lot of like creative problem solving. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm having a week long tech process actually doesn't really make sense for us. Um, I don't think because you're really you get that discovery time throughout the entire right. rehearsal. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly why we have the week when yeah. you have a rehearsal hall as opposed to space you have that week because you're never in the space but yeah. if you have the whole time in the space it's oh totally well and the alley is also producing on like things of a much larger scale well, than I have here that's at, at Studio 2 um, 
you know, like we don't have automation. We don't like have, Cyrano. Yeah, like Cyrano. And what was it? I think it. What was the other one? Like Pygmalion had some sort of like wagon drama. Um, I remember, but, but there's always like something. Yes. Um, but we don't have these elaborate yeah. scene transitions. Um, so you don't need that time to work right, through it. Right. But um, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I really like it. Was a. It was a weird shift. For me um but it also just means that like sometimes when you're a dramaturg and you're sitting around for a week-long tech like i mean i really like tech <laughs> um not just because of the snacks but because you really <laughs> do although that's definitely part of the appeal but um you really do learn a lot about like what yeah oh my gosh be. absolutely um and sometimes i think it's important to like maintain a little bit of critical distance like sometimes i don't always want to know the decisions that are being made just so i can be like a little objective um that oh, actually yeah, happened last year during water by the spoonful they were we were sort of like trying to figure out like choreographing like the storytelling of this fight scene and i'm like why don't i go away for a while so i can actually like sort of come to this with like fresh eyes and be of use and that actually ended up being very useful to the process um because i was just like ah okay i see what you did there and that like totally connects for me even though i wasn't there for that conversation um but what was i saying now i'm thinking about water by the spoonful um But um, so but the nice thing here is like when you have a two day tech, it's like they're basically like they sort of go through it. It's like it's you feel like you have to be here. Yeah. Um, I don't like not being here. Oh yeah. For yeah. That. So um, so that's also nice when it's a little bit of a compressed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Period. Um, because we ended up doing we end up doing runs on like the second day, which is sometimes a little traumatic for everybody yes. involved, but um, <laughs> but useful nonetheless. Yeah. Absolutely. That's and what we what we usually do at Actors Theater. That's not totally fair because I was only there for a year. Uh, but what we did in the year that I was yeah, there, yeah, that's like totally enough time to like understand like the inner workings of a well, place. So yeah. well, the entirety of the electrics department has been turned over since I worked there too. So yeah, m- might be different now, but mm-hmm. um, I doubt it because they only have so much time. And you would do ten out of twelve, ten out of twelve, five hour rehearsal, then yeah. preview. Wait, you did two 10 out of 12s back to back. Is that even like equity sanctioned? Is that allowed? Uh, it might have been one I ate out of. I know you're allowed two 10 out of 12s. Yeah. Well, maybe they're allowed back to back. I believe I've had them back to back before. Boy, it sucks, God. but it's act one. Yeah. Our, you know, act one, pre intermission, post intermission. Yeah. And then we had a run, and then we had a preview. Oh, God. Which is brutally fast. Yeah. That is. Ugh. <laughs> no, I am. Um... I have like nothing intelligent to say about that. I'm just sort of like <laughs> thinking about how how difficult that is. <laughs> well, we are at our hour, so Oh my gosh, look at that. Yeah. That just breezed on it by. It totally did. <laughs> um this is where if you have anything you would like to plug or like social media or shows that you oh. are Okay. Um, well, I can talk about what's running at studio right now. Absolutely. This will, because of I've been a little bit of a slacker, this will air almost immediately. Oh, awesome. Okay. So right now we have Jumpers for Goalposts by Tom Wells, which is totally delightful. Um, it's the U.S. premiere of it. Um, and it just got extended. I just got an email before I came in here. <laughs> um, so that's running to um, June 28th. All right. Okay. And then we're also opening up Mary Kate Olsen is in Love um, by Mallory Abaddon, which starts performances tonight. Um, and I'm not sure of the closing date off the top of my hands, but sometime in June. It'll um, be in the show notes. <laughs> and um, the next show that I dramaturg here at Studio is part of next season, and I'm doing the U.S. premiere of Chimerica by oh, okay. Lucy Kirkwood, which will start performances in September. So everybody should totally come see that because I'm going to be giving myself a crash course on, you know, 
U.S.-China economic relations um, over the last two decades. So come come see the, the fruits of that labor. I feel like there's a Coursera course on that. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, I'm going to find out. But um, and what else? Oh, yeah, social media. Um, oh, I'm on Twitter. Um, my deeply irreverent Twitter account, which is um, <laughs> at Halverson, H-A-L-V-O-R-S-E-N. And, uh, and I'm on the gr- I'm on the Instagram, but uh, <laughs> that's mostly just for like sort of tracking the comings and goings of the Barbie Grotto over on Q Street. Um, do, are you not familiar with the Barbie Grotto? I, I am not. Oh, the Barbie Grotto is like DC's finest monument. Okay, so it is. <laughs> it's hard to explain. It's um it's on Q Street. It's between 14th and 15th, and it's somebody's front yard, but it's like a fountain. And over the past year. It's sort of like evolved where like first there were sort of these like just like three sort of like haphazardly arranged like half naked Barbies. And then they started and then they sort of like added like a Ken doll. And then for like 4th of July, they had like the Statue of Liberty. And then they do like seasonal themes now. So there was like a very elaborate Halloween theme. And then there was like a little pilgrim scene. And right now they have like something up for pride. Um, But like it changes out on like a monthly basis. I'm completely obsessed with tracking it. the studio apartment that's right in front of it is up for rent right now. And I'm like, okay, it's definitely on my price range. But if it comes with like curatorial oversight, <laughs> I will totally like pony up the extra cash to do that. Um, but it's great. It's one of the great joys in my life <laughs> is watching the Barbie Grotto. Uh, yeah. That sounds fantastic. Yes. You should definitely check it out on your way on your way out. Oh, I totally will. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, that's all. That's all my plugs. Oh, and my book club. You should totally. Come. Everybody club, yeah. should join Sparkle Thunder or just read Americana in general, which is tremendous. Um, yes, th- th- those are my endorsements. All right. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs>